Welcome everybody to the first evening at the end of the first day of the Loving Kindness, Loving Presence Retreat. Whenever I've been in your shoes, um, getting to this particular part of the evening was a great relief. You know, it's a long day and anything can happen, but I knew by the time I had made it here, I was probably going to make it, <laughs> at least to bed. So. There's a sort of sense like, ah, we're getting to the victory lap stage where a talk, a walk, a sit, poof, and then look where we get to rest. So rest is coming. And this being the end of the first day, in the first full day of practice, um, you've had a wide experience, a wide range of experiences. And for many people, the first day can be actually uh, quite difficult. So how, how many of you today face something that felt physically difficult? Yeah. So you're in good company. And how many of you uh, face something that was more mentally, emotionally challenging on today? Okay. Not everybody, but um, it's common. And one thing to say about that, it took me a while to understand that it wasn't the fault of the retreat that the first day was hard. It was the fault of my life leading up to the retreat that made the first day hard. <laughs> because uh, what we're doing here is actually quite, um, quite benign. We're sitting, we're walking, we're breathing, trying to send kindness to the world. Uh, people are cooking food for us and we do a little washing, but the actual day is not that hard. It's just, it's not what our hearts, mind, and bodies, the patterns that we've cultivated, they're not used to this. And you came for that you came for this transition. So the first day has this type of uh, um, quite radical challenge to many of our uh, modern lives. Um, most of us don't live like this. Some people might be blessed to have this as a lifestyle, but uh, most of us are more busy, carrying a lot more responsibility, a lot more stress. We sit down right in the middle of it and it doesn't go away right away. Some of that, um, the tension we feel it, the craziness of the mind, the turbulence. Um, so what you're actually tasting today is not the first day of the retreat, but maybe the last month of your life. And that what's been difficult about being here um, really is tasting what many of us have not been tasting, staying busy, moving on, but not being able to feel as deeply as we needed to. And this is some of what we experienced today. So for some of you, it was a very challenging day or some people not so much. That's also an interesting thing. When it's not so challenging, that's also an indicator of what your life is like, that you have a sense of calm, that you can bring your attention back, that you can guide yourself into a kind presence. That's also what your life looks like. Otherwise, you couldn't have done it today. So really, today is, uh, says something about the retreat, but it says a lot more. It's a mirror back, really, of what our daily life is like. It took me a long time to really see that until I did a number of retreats and then realized um, that that was the case, that I was just mirroring back to myself. And it made me kind of develop some conviction that if I didn't want to suffer so much on the first day, I had to live differently. <laughs> I could either stop going to retreats, I could just suffer, or it might actually be an indicator of like, oh, maybe I need to be a little bit more like I do on retreat out in daily life because I get so out of hand. And I know that when I come on retreat for the first day. Every night at this time, we're going to give um, a talk. And I think it's titled the Dharma Talk. We're going to talk about the tradition. We're going to talk about the practices. Um, you can listen. You can take notes if you want. Um, but what I recommend is that you also somewhat treat this like a practice period. So um, how you listen how you're present, how you stay in your body, how you bring your attention back if your mind has wandered, keeping a kind um, glow in your heart for whoever is talking. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> um, <clears throat> treat it as practice. And there were definitely times when I was um, a younger uh, student where I needed a break. I just couldn't do it all day long. I mean, that, that's way too many hours. And so I would 
relax and check out a little bit and just take in the talk and then start up again afterwards. But if you can, one of the things about this practice is that it's not one in short, courageous surges. You surge, you run out of steam, you fall back, you get disheartened, you pick yourself up again. I don't recommend you surge again. It's really just by steady patience and faith that just stay in. This tradition that we've developed here um, has 2,500 years behind it. And it didn't even, a lot of it didn't even start then. That's the time that the Buddha lived, but he incorporated a lot that he learned from the time in India. And it seemed to have gone back hundreds, if not, uh, some people think maybe a thousand years or more before he lived, these meditative traditions. So humans have been doing this for a long time. We've developed this tradition here. So if you're new to it, or if you've had a particularly challenging day, know that that's part of the course. And uh, different challenges come up, but this particular one of um, like an ill-fitting shoe being tight and kind of a little achy, um, some of that shifts um, and different things happen. So faith and patience is needed. And it's an act of kindness to yourself to put aside a lot of evaluation that doesn't really make much sense on the first day. And so if you can, put aside the evaluations and just stay steady with the practice. And that's another thing that I learned over time is that the practice is really one by many, many sincere small steps. And if you can do sincere small steps throughout the day, that's great. Rather than the heroic surges that lead to a, an overextension and then feeling like you have to uh, take a break and you feel disheartened. So I do this type of intensive practice, I call it second gear. I'm not, in, I'm not looking for highway speeds. I'm looking for second gear and I might have to drop into first every now and then if I'm hitting really hard material. But I'm not trying to get that far. I'm not trying to get anywhere with the practice. You're already here in the present. So relax into it steadily, gently, with faith and patience. Spring gave a great intro um, this afternoon. And Dory before that, Dory sort of inviting us into kind presence with our hearts, our minds, our bodies. And then spring showing us the nuts and bolts of loving-kindness practice. So the tradition that we've been practicing here um, does date back to the time of the Buddha, but the specific practice we were doing, as Spring was saying, came um, was much more formulated and written down um, in Sri Lanka. And so we've been following that. It works for a lot of people. And you can adapt it so you actually um, get more out of it. That's what you'll learn over the days um, is what how do you approach these practices? You get to experiment a lot. We're practicing uh, something in English we call loving kindness. And at the time of the Buddha, um, he spoke a language very close to what we call Pali, a Pali language. And the word is metta, and that might be um, new for some of you, but it's M-E-T-T-A. And metta is actually easier to say than loving kindness. There's just fewer syllables. Um, and it's a little more accurate. So if you're willing to learn one foreign word tonight, uh, you can learn this word, metta. I'll probably go back and forth between them. Nice thing about having a word like metta is that it can stand for the perfection of love. It, you, if you don't know what it is already, then you have a clean slate. You put up those five letters. And metta is the perfection of love. It's a loving heart. And as Spring decide, uh, described earlier, you all have this. This is not a foreign thing you bring in from the outside. You find it within, you dust it off. Or if it's a fire, you blow on the coals and you add some sticks and you kind of get the metta um, uh, fire burning by just uh, attending it. But we all have this. And the amazing thing is that there's nobody who doesn't have it. It's actually uh, hardwired into us that all... Uh, all humans, and I believe all mammals, um, and maybe other animals, have this loving kindness. It's in us. So it's about finding it, cleaning it off, and encouraging it to grow more than what's ordinary. And that's what we have the chance to do on this retreat. So it's the perfection of love. What does that mean? It's, if you had to dial into it, if I have to dial into it, it is often what I feel 
um, quite spontaneously, when I hear children break out in laughter, really young children breaking out in laughter, and without even having to think about it, there's just something that kind of lifts in me. Even if I'm focused on something else, just hearing children laughter, um, children laugh, there's just sort of a, a lightening, a warming, a joy that comes up uh, for their happiness. And just a love of that, ah, oh, happy kids, that's wonderful. I also see the same thing, I think we all do, that's why there's so many YouTube things about kittens and cats and dogs and puppies. It's quite easy to access. Quite easy to access, of course you want the welfare. It's just sort of, it, it comes spontaneously and we all have that. We all have that to some degree in us, um, this loving kindness, this metta. And that's why it's in its more pure form. And what happens is that we, we get complicated because we like love and we fear pain. And so we start to make contracts around it and it's no longer quite as um, pure. And that becomes what we call complex or complicated love, not the perfection of love, but the compromise of love, where we start to uh, get attached and affixed, where we start to um, not trust the loving heart. So it becomes more contractual, where you load on some expectations or some defenses so you don't get hurt, which is a lovely thing about hearing, again, children laughing or seeing uh, dogs and kittens or whatever, is that there's no contract often. It just sort of was more spontaneous. Ah, I, I, I have this love rising for you. And I'm just enjoyed, I enjoy your well-being and your happiness. And I'm on your side instantly. That's actually the tone of loving kindness. It's one of the tones of loving kindness. And the great thing about that tone is that it's beautiful unto itself. It actually is considered a boundless quality. And so there's no upper limit to what to the amount of loving kindness we can develop. Even the Buddha didn't find an upper limit of what was possible with loving kindness. We start with what we have and we grow it and we continue to grow it and it keeps on expanding and keeps on expanding and doesn't hit a ceiling, this capacity for loving kindness. What we'll do on this retreat and what we'll do um, maybe you've already done this to your, in your life to some degree, we'll do it on the retreat and we'll do it afterwards, is keep being clear what is loving kindness and learning to trust it and willing to uh, follow it and to put aside our defenses and put aside our contracts and our expectations and learn to actually be fed by our own capacity to love rather than being fed by the one we're loving, actually loving others becomes its own nutrition. And then the loving kindness is actually feeding us. We don't need so much of a contract in who we're loving. There was a, um, a Catholic monk, an American Catholic monk named Th- Thomas Merton. And um, he was very open-minded and did a lot of practice and uh, began to see beauty in all the traditions around the world. And uh, he wrote a lot, he practiced a lot, and he ended, I think, I think several years of his life, his last years were just in silence. Um, but here's some things he talked about when he talked about uh, this perfection of love. Love seeks one thing only, the good of the one loved. It leaves all the other secondary effects to care for themselves. Love, therefore, is its own reward. And later on he wrote, the beginning of love is to let those we love be perfectly themselves and not to twist them to fit our own image. Otherwise, we only love the reflection of ourselves we find in them. I think we all can actually intuit that We all have been on the receiving end of really um, beautiful, loving kindness. We've all offered it. And we also know that we get sucked into complex love and we know when we've been complexly loved um, by other people's little hidden agendas that you can feel or sometimes they're not so hidden. And they feel like they're loving you but it comes with a big contract. And so how do we soften that? Well, people like contracts. They think that's where the security comes from. But it ends up weighing down and somewhat blocking the actual uh, perfection of love, to have too many expectations, too many contracts, 
too many um, uh, uh, um, attachments to the experience of loving kindness. So we get to develop that over the days that we're here together and explore that. And, and it's not just like an escalator going up and every hour you're going to be higher up in loving kindness. There's a lot of up and down, but you learn just as much of the downs of the suffering quality of ordinary love that does have these hidden or not so hidden agendas and then get to actually experience what it's like when the heart's free and very generous and it can give and it can receive, but there's fewer of these, uh, these binding aspects. It's just a very free, warm exchange. Loving kindness is the most common translation of metta, but it also could be translated in other ways. You could call it uh, universal friendliness. <clears throat> when I was younger, I did a lot of travel in Asia and India. And um, I remember being bewildered in some places and then fear would come up. And then people would sort of see my fear and they'd become cautious. And what I learned to do over time is just assume radical trust and radical kindness and I saw that reflected in people. And then I could see it everywhere. So when I had more of a fear filter on, I kind of saw the world that way. But when I began to see, it's everywhere. It's not only in humans again. You can see it in animals. You can see that this, there is a universal friendliness. And then different people have different access to a strength of that, to a power of that. And some people momentarily are quite blocked from it but it's something uh, that you can find everywhere. So universal friendliness um, captures that side of uh, loving kindness as well. So you end up being a friend to the world. You end up being a friend to all life. As a monk, I was trained in that. There are many ways, like doing um, the precepts that we took last night when we began. The precepts can just be do's and don'ts, until you connect them with your heart, and then they actually are part of your heart's loving perfection, that you end up caring for all life and growing in that direction. It was quite, um, it was expected of us that we would love all life and we would train in that direction without qualifications. It was wonderful to be held to that high standard and to train to that high standard so that even though there were mosquitoes that would be carrying malaria, we wouldn't kill them, but we would try to get them out of our cabin, but without harming them. Um, you would find bed bugs and not kill them <laughs> and somehow get the bed bugs off your bed and break out the nests by not intentionally harming them or doing it out of malice or fear or irritation. That was the training. So that aspect of your ethical behavior, your ethical conduct coming out of loving kindness is a beautiful aspect of that universal friendliness. We can practice for many reasons, and many of you have your own uh, many reasons why you came to this retreat. It's beautiful to practice loving kindness. You may not have felt that way today at times, but it's a beautiful intention and to grow loving kindness in your own heart and mind. Um, your own heart and mind become more beautiful. You actually have beauty inside. When I was younger, I had access to it, but I also had access to more fear and more self-doubt. Um, and those have um, really waned over the years. And it's a much friendlier place inside than it used to be. And a lot of that has come through um, steadily doing loving kindness practice and seeing, yeah, you can make a difference to your patterns inside. And to every degree, it's worth it. We practice loving kindness also to come out of our distorted views Every mood and emotion that passes through you comes with a worldview. If you actually uh, look at it, fear tells a story about the world that you're not safe. Anger tells a story that you've been wronged. Um, falling in love tells a story about all this promise in, in another. Each mood that passes through you comes with a story. Some of those stories are more useful than others. So as we practice loving kindness, we come out of the confusions of uh, feeling betrayed and running that story or feeling angry 
or feeling uh, afraid, we can actually learn to come out of those patterns and not see the world through those filters. So loving kindness is beautiful. It brings uh, slow closure um, and complete closure to some habits, some emotional habits and patterns that cut us off from others. And it also becomes quite a power. And you're going to, in your way, you're going to find that on this retreat. You've really done an amazing thing to take this many days to cultivate loving kindness. So I'm excited to see how that plays out for you all, not only on the retreat, but curious how that will ripple forward. The way that we practice, as Spring talked about earlier, is that we find a mixture of supports that bring forward and stabilize loving kindness. And then of course we lose it and our minds wander. And then we bring it back again. And so we have the support of these phrases. We have the support of images of people or animals or beings that we care for. We also have the felt sense. And if you practice throughout the day, you might find sometimes the felt sense is the strongest part, but the phrases don't make much sense anymore for some reason. And then a little bit later, the phrases make a little bit more sense and you've lost the felt sense. Or the image is clearer at one point, not so. But play with whatever image, whatever phrases, and uh, that felt sense in your own heart and your own body of this gentleness, this kindness, this friendliness. And then that uh, tends to grow, that feeling inside. So it's a combination. And what you end up doing Um, just because you're going to be here for so long, (laughs) is that this is what um, one of my teachers, Kamala Masters, said that um, it was meaningful to me when she said it. It really clicked. She said, all I do when I practice is I take what I have and I apply it. I take where I am and I point it. So loving kindness, you're going to learn how to practice loving kindness when it's easy You're going to learn to practice loving kindness when it's difficult. And they're both useful. Can you connect to the phrases when you're naturally happy and content? Or maybe that's actually difficult because when you're naturally content, you say, why bother practicing? I feel good now. So can you still be dedicated to the practice when um, you're feeling content, when you're feeling calm? Can you feel it later when you start to get a little bit bored? I'm bored, but I'm still going to say the next phrase. I'm bored and I'm still going to recall someone I care about. I'm feeling tired. I'm feeling irritated. I'm feeling restless. I'm feeling joyful. I've got this surge of planning mind. Like, okay, no matter where you are, can you point yourself in a kind direction from wherever you are? That means that there are fewer and fewer conditions when you can't connect to loving kindness, as the conditions become fewer and fewer, the love becomes unconditional. There are no conditions to where you're not actually connected to kindness. The Dalai Lama, who is uh, the leader of the Tibetan people and the Tibetan um, traditions, um, he has such a scholar and such a deep practitioner, and um, his knowledge is vast and He's a political leader, he knows all the texts, he does all the rituals. And so when he says something like, uh, my religion is kindness, it kind of perfectly sums up what he uh, feels about all of his practices. They're all aimed at developing kindness. And so no matter where we are, can we point towards kindness? The Dalai Lama also said, um, be kind whenever it's possible, and it's always possible. (laughs) So you got a little hook in there. In doing this practice um, over the many uh, decades in this culture, we've learned that for it to really... um, really become powerful and integrated in us. We also have to be embodied. So sometimes with the images and the phrases, when I was younger, I could kind of spin around saying images and phrases and feel some warmth. 
but I wasn't encouraged to actually bring my body along for that ride. My body would ache and it seemed to actually be counter to the ride. So I'd kind of put more intention into the images and phrases. And over the years, I've actually learned that it's really uh, an embodied kindness that's powerful. My body needs to come along for every step of the way. So I actually need to practice loving kindness for my body. I need to be in my body. I need to feel it. And then find that there are these patterns that are blocks, like Spring talked about earlier. You can have a block over your heart. You can have certain blocks in your neck. You can be muscular or energetic. Be patient with your body. Learn to love and be kind to your body, and it will open up. If you're forceful or irritated with your body, if you're still at war with your body, see if you can bring that attitude down so that you're more patient, more kind to this uh, incredible vehicle, this incredible animal of the human body that you live within. Be embodied. And that's why um, we were so excited to blend these two practices. And really they're one practice the qigong and the loving kindness, so that um, we end up bringing the body along with us and not, and not making the mistake of uh, forgetting the body along the way. So the qigong, the walking meditation, even while you're sitting, um, bring the body along with you and make sure that you're staying connected to it. Most of us have been bombarded with so much media about what bodies should look like, that most of us are actually somewhat disappointed, unless you've worked really hard to reclaim a friendly relationship to your body. And it's not accurate to disparage this body. The human body is, is phenomenal. You really are in something you should be, um, in a constant state of awe in, I mean, you have 10,000 cells working and you don't have to do any of the work. You know, you take care of the taxes, you put a little food in, you breast it, you bathe it, but then you have all these cells working in perfect unison to give you a human body, let alone how they um, develop into organs, let alone um, the ability for this whole body to dance and walk and play music and be strong and be subtle, be tender. You're in one. You have one. So to measure it as, as less than really is not the right view. To have a kind relationship and a somewhat loving and awful, awful? <laughs> Full of awe <laughs> relationship to the body. That, uh, I wish I had been more encouraged than that when I first began uh, 25 years ago. It wasn't quite the, 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 the collective understanding at the time. So it wasn't a lot of encouragement. The body was something we were aware of, but it wasn't uh, to live an embodied life. And this is why we've incorporated yoga and qigong and other things to make sure that as we practice, we're really keep, uh, taking the body along with us and waking up from within the body. Then having compassion for this body, it suffers a lot. It's quite powerful, it's quite amazing, and yet it hurts at times. And rather than being frustrated with it, can we be patient and kind and compassionate to ourselves uh, when the body feels what it's going to feel, which is at times some suffering, some pain. In practicing loving-kindness, the way we're practicing here um, can get quite intimate, and it's really right in the present moment, right as you're taking a step, feeling inside your body, maybe being aware of just the space right around you, and starting there, keeping it simple, not too complex uh, conceptually, moment by moment, gently but steadily, saying the phrases, connecting consciously and with some... Um, some, and choicefully towards a particular being, yourself or others. But as we progress, we begin to have the capacity not only to be aware of our immediate 
surroundings, ourselves and others uh, right around us. But you can start to actually feel um, a broader connection to life and the loving kindness can expand. So that can be a delicate relationship you're having to the moment right in front of you. And it also can hold um, vast numbers of beings and you can care for vast numbers of beings. And so it can have a very personal aspect to it. And you can begin to practice loving kindness more collectively. And so as a community of individuals who have practiced, we're then creating a, a communal field of loving kindness. And that's gonna be palpable. If people walked in here, they're gonna feel that. It's like this is not an ordinary group of people. The room doesn't feel ordinary. It feels like it's actually full of this tender, kind, loving kindness. That's important because uh, what we can do as individuals is important, but our world actually needs loving kindness on a large scale. We need it, and more than ever. We're now like 7.2 or 3 billion people. And if we, if we are not good at sharing this planet, the suffering is, the suffering is really overwhelming we have to be able to practice courageous loving kindness on a broad scale and begin to see large patterns playing out so you have capacity of heart to stay connected to the sufferings and the joys of the world. That's what this practice can, can strengthen in you. It's definitely strengthened that in me, my ability to connect immediately, but also more globally. I did a lot of uh, activism and service when I was younger and when being younger and being impatient, I sometimes would run the, the fuel of my, of my anger at the world. And it wasn't very effective. It was inspiring to the other young people next to me. <laughs> but when I was, um, there were the, um, I used to do a lot of uh, protesting at the nuclear test site in Nevada, where they, they've exploded like 700 nuclear weapons in Nevada, a lot of them underground. We were working with the Shoshone community there and really trying to um, get an attunement of what it was like to have these people that had lived there for thousands of years on that land and come in and help them with uh, Native American land rights any way we could, any way they wanted to help. And also to stop these nuclear tests. And so I went there with this youthful um, passion but I thought we could do it within a week. You know, I really thought we could do it. <laughs> I'd changed so much in a week, why couldn't they? You know, being young. And I was looking at all these people, there was 5,000 people protesting over the course of 10 days, many people getting uh, arrested, and they'd do catch and release, so they would arrest you, but they wouldn't want to process you, so they'd drive you a ways away, they'd release you. Your friends would pick you up, drive you right back, and you'd get arrested, and give you like peanut butter sandwiches on the way, <laughs> so you just... It was an f- interesting dance. It didn't actually make much of a difference, but um, we tried something. Uh, but during that time, I saw really phenomenal committed activists, people who have been committed for you know, 30 years, 40 years, doing uh, this peace work. And <clears throat> one time I was walking, one time I was near where people were getting arrested, and I saw these two elder Quaker women um, and I knew them because they were in the camp next to us um, in a different part of the desert. And they were walking up and I took notice and I'm like, oh, I wonder what they're going to do. And they walked over and they were kind of singing a little song arm in arm. And they walked right across the gate and the, um, this one sheriff saw them coming and he kind of trotted up with a smile and arrested them. And they had this exchange. They had this very loving exchange. Like, oh, Frank, I, th- I was wondering if you would arrest us. And they're like, oh, Mabel and Cheryl, I'm so glad to see you. How have you been? And, they had, and while they were being arrested and processed, they had this really warm exchange. I thought, my God, how are they doing that? How are they actually caring for each other? And it was authentic. I thought there's no war between these three people. They've ended their war. They have no bombs for protection. That was beautiful. And later on, when I was walking back to my camp, I walked by the, the Quaker camp, and I heard them talking and singing songs and by a crackling fire. And I asked myself at the time, like, 
that's what I want my heart to look like, but I have no idea how to get it from here to there. I, I just don't know how to do that. My own heart is, is jagged sometimes. It hurts and I'm easily offended. And like, how would I cultivate that? And years later, I found this practice, loving kindness practice. And I saw there's actually something you can do to train so your own heart becomes inspiring to you. Your own capacity to be kind and patient and to work on those jagged patterns inside. I never actually met those two Quaker women and they had a big impact on me. That's phenomenal. They're just doing their beautiful acts in life, but it was so full of love, so steadily and uncompromisingly that they were affecting people around them they never knew. And they inspired me. I was very, very clear. I no longer wanted to be an angry, short-tempered activist. I wanted to actually have powerful love like they did and was really willing to do anything to do that and found practices that were uh, capable of uh, cultivating love like that. So it becomes powerful and it becomes very intimate, like the two Quaker women being arrested by that one sheriff. But then that's also a collective experience. Other police were watching him. He was an elder in their community, an older sheriff, and he was showing them that they didn't have to be jerks about it. And they were showing us young, young activists, we didn't have to be jerks about it. That actually those nuclear weapons come from a dearth of kindness. They come when kindness really has, people have given up on kindness and communication. That's why you want a weapon that big. So that was very inspiring on a personal level and on a much larger collective level. And we need this. We need this all through the planet for us to share it in harmony. We need loving kindness on that level to be powerful. There was um, an early American writer named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And one of the short things that he wrote, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to to disarm all hostility. That's another thing I didn't know when I was younger because I only saw the surfaces of people but as I've gotten to know people, there's really nobody that I've gotten to know well that I haven't learned about their actual journey. And all of our actual journeys versus the ones we show people more uh, on the street or in the stores or people you don't know well. But you know anybody well enough you're going to find somebody that has been through a lot. If you really know them, if they know themselves well enough to show you that side of them you'll find that everybody's gone through something. Connecting to that and feeling that engenders so much kindness and compassion versus the reactivity that can come. So look for that. Look for it in yourself, but also listen for it in others so that you have that more global uh, understanding and kindness available and kind of assume that anybody you're talking to probably has been through something quite challenging, if not many things that have been challenging. There's a, another American author named Bell Hooks, who's also a social activist. And one of the things that she said, I mean, someone who's been dedicated for decades on incredible writings and uh, analysis of social structures that lead to harm and racism and classism, the way that that structures so much suffering. But uh, she's also written about the, intern- the internal journey as well. So she has good internal insight and external insight. One thing that she wrote about love, knowing how to be solitary is central to the art of loving. When we can be alone, We can be with others without using them as a means of escape. And so that's another aspect that will come with patience, with loving kindness, is 
connecting to inner contentment, your own inner resources. Again, when I was younger, I didn't have a lot of inner resources, so I needed a lot from the outside. But as I've cultivated that inner capacity, I'm less dependent on others. And so the exchange isn't one of dependencies, joy. I like serving other people. My friends enjoy uh, serving me, you know, taking care of me. But there's not this sort of like weighted um, expectation that comes when you actually know how to be with yourself. And that will happen a lot on this retreat, under this practice, is learning self-kindness, self-patience, being oriented towards that. As an exercise, <clears throat> um, cup your hands in front of you and hold them out. If we are looking for other people to fill our hands, if it feels like we don't have it inside of us, then we're quite desperate to come to the world and say, please fill my hands. Please fill my hands. Please love me. So you can feel that, your arms way extended out in front of you, the precariousness of it being so far from you outside. Now bring that in, put your, fold your hands like this, and put it right under your um, solar plexus area. Imagine sitting, breathing, being kind, being content, being simple. And see that you can actually do a lot of that yourself. You can actually cultivate your own inner resources, your own inner well-being, your own inner kindness. And as that begins to grow inside, you'll find that you have access. You have a lot. And the thing that wants to happen next is to share it. And so your hands can go out again, but they're not reaching out for happiness. They're actually reaching, bringing inner happiness out to others. And now your hands are full and they're, they can go wide. So the precariousness from the first one is we're seeking for love and validation. We learn to care for ourselves, develop that, and then reach back out to the world. It's a very different relationship that next time your hands can go out, but there's not a dearth inside looking for it outside. There's a sharing exchange from having uh, inner well-being. And that comes about again from this loving kindness practice. It's hard to imagine, maybe at times, repeating these phrases and maybe at times it gets a little dull, a little repetitive, but you stay with it, stay with it, have faith. That's what we all did. Stay with it, say another phrase, see if you can say it sincerely. See if you can say it sincerely for an easy being. May you feel safe and protected. Hmm. May you feel happy and peaceful, healthy and strong. May you live at ease in this world. You can pick one of those phrases, two, you can say all four. You can change the words slightly. If it helps with the sincerity of actually getting in touch with your own kind heart, then that's really what grows over time. You really grow and you, each phrase as you work with it develops more meaning over the days when you really reflect on what the gift of safety, you know, feeling safe versus not feeling safe, or feeling healthy, really not feeling healthy. Each one of these phrases keeps expanding to become quite a gift in your own heart towards yourself and for others. And it grows into that place where you do have inner well-being. An inner well-being that's not just because of the circumstances, it's actually inner well-being that you've cultivated. I've been gardening for a while. Um, not not a very good gardener. Um, I like gardening, but I don't necessarily like um, stay committed all the way to like 
like things being um, flourishing, and I like it, but it's, uh, I don't know, there, there's something about not necessarily like producing a lot from my garden. So, um, but I like it. I've been gardening for a while. And I just had um, a friend, we were worrying about the drought, and at my house we have a well, and I just never know when the well's going to go dry. So watering the garden, it's always a little bit like, I don't know if we have the water for this. So I put it in a drip irrigation system. And the first thing I did is I lined all the beds with these soaker hoses so the entire bed would be soaked. And what that did is it fed the plants, but also fed all the weeds. And they exploded like a hedge. Like you couldn't tell what weed, like it was so intertwined. And California weeds are like sharp and prickly and they're well dug in. Like, oh, if I just broadly uh, water everything, everything grows. And so we came in, and now we put um, individual lines to the actual, so it's dripping just at the, the plant that you want to support. And that makes the tomatoes grow crazy and the kale is growing crazy. But it doesn't just feed anything. The way that relates to practice is that if you're sitting here and you're feeding loving kindness, and you remember an old argument with somebody, and you start feeding that, like, yeah. I know what I should have said. Yeah, I'll go back in time machine and say that thing. Oh yeah, look at that. I won the argument. That's great. Now what else can I do? If you're feeding your angry mind, your arguing mind, then that will grow. And so what you want to do in this practice is one by one, until you learn it's universal, not feed the things that don't taste like love. It's like, well, I like it. Or I kind of need that part of me. I need that that edge of me. That's how I feel safe. And over time, you don't because love becomes powerful enough. You don't need anger. You don't need defenses. You don't need um, old habits. I was talking to a a friend of mine who um, used to work with really tough kids. And he was good at it because he had this like, um, this steely resolve you just couldn't put anything over on him. He'd just give you this dead stare in the eye. And you knew any game you were playing had just been called out. So, and so we talked about it. I said, well, you're a Dharma student. Like, how do you have all that kind of like, you know, anger and edge inside? He said, no, I, I need it. I definitely need it. And he just wrote me, it's now about 10 years later. And he said, I'm so glad you asked me that question because it started me thinking I started practicing. Over the last 10 years, I've let go of so much that inner um, shielding and, and intensity. And he's still a powerful character, but he doesn't have that kind of hardened internal um, defense. And he's grateful that he doesn't need it anymore. But he, what's happened is he's grown his love and capacity to be just as powerful as old anger and defiance used to be. As um, Spring was talking about uh, earlier, this practice will purify you. And it's just good to know that. It's just good to know that we don't know what type of retreat we're going to get. And once you do many of them, you realize it's not even worth trying to guess what type of retreat you're going to get. Just the one you get is the one that you needed. And in hindsight, it makes sense. So some of them are kind of like, oh, wow, not a lot of suffering in this retreat. That's kind of nice. It says nothing about the next retreat. <laughs> or the retreat is like a lot of up and down, like, oh my God, this is a crazy retreat. I don't know why. Or whatever will happen will happen. But often what happens uh, over time is that you, you let go of an old pattern. And the way that happens is um, it tends to kind of come out of hiding you do all this loving kindness practice and rather than being an escalator that kind of just makes you every hour a little more loving, suddenly you get this flush of experience coming through you of fear or anger or impatience. You can't stand the people you know, are, uh, sitting in kindness around you that you were loving earlier. And they're sort of like, what's happening? The practice is going so, I'm so bad at this. If you, if the little, little flag goes off, I wonder if this is purification, then you won't freak out so much about it. <laughs> so if it happens to you, um, and the, the only way you really know is that when these happen, you learn after the fact, like, oh, wow, because you feel cleaner afterwards. You feel like something has left your system. 
But on the way out, it goes from hiding and dormant to a little bit more expressed to finally released. This happened to me on uh, one retreat where I was doing a lot of loving-kindness practice, and I did it with a lot of trepidation because I didn't have a lot of access to loving-kindness earlier. So I was like, it's hard, but I know I need it. So I was putting in my time, and that wasn't a very rewarding retreat. I was like, I'm definitely the worst person who's ever done loving-kindness, but it's okay. <laughs> so that was my loving-kindness as about as far as I got. I was definitely the worst, but I was okay with being the worst. And they're like, yeah, that's, that's better than just being the worst and kind of being sad you're the worst. You're okay with being the worst. Like, yeah, I'm okay with being the worst. And so that was my high bar. <clears throat> and, I, and I did it for, it was a three-month retreat. And so I was just on as like, God, is this ever going to turn around? Is this ever going to like break through? And towards the end of the retreat, I started getting so furious. I put in all this time. They said it would work. It doesn't work. I'm in pain. I'm so bad at this. I'm bad at it. They're bad teachers. Something's wrong here. This should have worked by now. So I came for love and I got all this hate and impatience. And suddenly I just got furious. I got so furious. I was like, I've been here for two and a half months. I have two weeks to go. And I'm furious. I've I've never hated people as much as this. (laughs) And so... Everybody's coming in for the Dharma talk. And I was like, I can't stand all these people. I have to get out of the room. Went outside. It was December. It was cold outside. It was like in the teens. I had to put a sleeping bag over me, a little breathe hole, and my boots on, and a jacket underneath it. And I was walking around. I was like, ah. I'm outside. It's cold. It's dark. I'm lonely. Everybody inside. And it was one of those Dharma talks where everybody's laughing. Like, the, <laughs> something's happening. The community needs to release. And it's like, yeah, it was incredible laughter coming out. I was lonely and cold outside. People were laughing inside. I was like, ah, it's one of those freaking talks. I wish I was in the room, but I hate everybody. I can't be in the room. What have you done to me? And I was just out there. I was crunching in the snow, crunching in the snow. And then I hit some threshold. And I was purifying the entire time. I didn't know it. So I was just kind of like, at some point, it just was this release, and I thought, wow, I wonder how many times the teachers who've been so patient with me, someone will kick open the doors like, you betrayed me! <laughs> like, what have you done to me? And it's like, oh, you're purifying, like a patient, you know. But I just, I was so angry at them, and then realized, wow, I bet people kind of like throw a lot of that energy at them. Wow, they're really patient. And then my heart opened and softened, And I heard the laughter. I was like, I'm so happy people are laughing. This is hard and good for them. And I wasn't attempting to do loving kindness. Like I was also kind of looking at my own heart like, wow, look at you loving everybody. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, huh. Everybody's laughing and I'm crunching out in the snow and the stars out and it's all gonna be okay. It's all gonna be okay. Like, yeah, that was a lot. And then it got really quiet. I heard the laughter got still outside. Because of the snow, everything was super quiet. It was beautiful, it was perfect. I had no idea that minutes after this peak experience of all this anger would lead to uh, such a beautiful, tender, present capacity. And that was sort of the the tone that carried out for the rest of the retreat. So at my peak moment of betrayal, of feeling betrayed, which is really just this flush of purifying out all this uh, dormant anxiety and uh, upset with other people as I was flushing out, it finally did flush out. And what was left was uh, such a quiet, humble, um, tender, steady space that I got to actually bathe in for the last two weeks. So just when I was convinced it wasn't going to work, and really convinced, <laughs> there was a turnaround. And so because we've all seen that uh, we can um, give you encouragement that uh, at points in the retreat, it will really feel like it's not working. Something's wrong. It shouldn't be this boring. I shouldn't be this angry. I shouldn't be this impatient. If the thought occurs to you, you'll suffer less. This might be purification. So I hope it does come for you. If not, we'll remind you that there's something called purification. If I can benefit from this practice, you can. I did not start further ahead than you. I know that. (laughs) Um, 
There was a lot of self-hate when I was younger. There was a lot of confusion inside. It hurt a lot to do this practice when I was younger. And it took a lot of courage many years in to realize I needed it. And it was a slow but steady um, cultivation. And uh, it's changed a lot of that internal patterning of self-doubt and self-frustration. So I've received a lot from this practice, but it's just sort of a dogged determination to be steady with it that will carry you through the retreat. And so I really want that for you. As much as we can encourage you, you're going to have to encourage yourself a lot. You're going to wake up in the morning, uh, may you be happy, may you be safe, uh, I'm so tired, okay. Stand up, may you be at ease, right? What's the first phrase again? <laughs> so we are encouraging you to start as early as possible and carry it through the day so you get momentum. It's, Spring talked about turning the car engine over to get it started. Um, for me, it felt like I was bicycling on a, in really hilly territory and suddenly it would be really hard and I'd be saying the phrases but it felt like a lot of work. And all of a sudden I'd be coasting downhill and I was like, a child could do this, it's so easy, I love everybody. And all of a sudden another hill would come and it's like, oh, just it's bicycling, you know. These, the times of work and times of flow, times of a little boredom, times of work, times of flow. And generally over time, you work through obstacles and blocks begin to open up. And you begin to uh, pull the mud and the sticks off of the gold of your own heart and it begins to shine more. I'll end with this uh, quote by, two quotes by Hafiz, who was a, a poet a long time ago, I think over in the Middle East or uh, towards India. He has this one beautiful short quote. Um, let see if I can find it. Yeah, called The Sun. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens to a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. And here's another one called the warrior. The warriors tame the beasts in their past so that the knight's hoofs can no longer break the jeweled vision in the heart. The intelligent and the brave open every closet in the future and evict all of the mind's ghosts who have the bad habit of barfing everywhere. <laughs> For a long time, the universe has been germinating in your spine. But only a saint has the talent, the courage to, to slay the past giant and the future anxieties. The warrior wisely sits in a circle with other good people, gathering the strength to unmask themselves. Then sitting, giving, like a great illumined planet on the earth. Let's just sit for a moment and settle in. Let the words dissipate. <coughs> and see if you can, in your own heart, blend a strong conviction to be patient and steady while you're here. Never forcing the practice, yet never abandoning it either. With patience, blend the saying of the phrases, the image of a being that you easily care for, and see if you can connect to that sincere heart that wishes well for another. 
patience and courage. The warrior wisely sits in a circle with other good people, gathering the strength to unmask themselves, then sits giving like a great illumined planet on the earth. So we have some time for walking meditation and then coming in for the victory lap sit with chanting and, uh, and rest after that if, you, if and when you need it. So enjoy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.